Hello and welcome to the CEU Medieval Radio podcast. I'm Karen Culver and in this podcast, part of a series of the New Faces, New Ideas, in which we talk to current PhD students from the Medieval Studies Department at CEU about their research. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Knox, a sixth year doctoral student currently based in Vienna. Originally from New Zealand, Dan is a PhD student at CEU and a Pre-Doc University Assistant at the University of Vienna, where he teaches courses on network analysis, digital humanities tools and techniques, and ancient social media, which does sound rather interesting. His PhD thesis examines the topics of coalition formation and conflict during the double papal election of 498 and the subsequent Laurentian schism. In his spare time, Dan is a keen follower of American football and has just admitted he was up till two o'clock this morning watching a game. Daniel, welcome to the CEU Medieval Radio. Thanks, Karen. That's a a wonderful introduction. Your research subject focuses on coalitions and network during a papal schism of the late 5th century in Rome. Why did you select this particular subject and period? Um, I I think my research uh, topic evolved over time. So uh, my thoughts in, in, in late antiquity and in um, the study of, of social networks goes back to uh, the MA thesis that I completed at the University of Auckland, um, where I was very interested in the letter and exchange networks of, of post-Roman Gaul in the, the 5th and early 6th centuries. I've sort of drawn by the, the evidence to start with. Um, we have some very lovely and extensive uh, letter collections from that period, um, which make doing this kind of research very, very plausible. And it makes it, it makes it a lot easier when you have a, a good evidence base to start with. Um, and when I came to do my PhD thesis, I originally sort of wanted to look at social networks more broadly, but for a good history PhD, you need a conflict or you need some sort of story. Originally, I was intending to focus my PhD very much on uh, Anodius of Pavia, uh, a sixth century deacon of the Church of Milan and his interactions as a, a regional aristocrat in um, the social networks of his period. But uh, that was sort of an aimless topic in many respects. So I, I sort of decided to make Anodius one of the heroes of my thesis because he's involved in this in this papal schism. And I was drawn to the, the idea of conflict and, and coalition formation. To start with, it, it provides a nice story to, to do sort of the sociological modeling that I, I want to do as part of my methodology. And you know, I think um, you know, when you have two popes elected on the same day and street fights in, in Rome um, over that fact, but I think I was drawn to the, the sort of almost the romance of the story that you have these, these two individuals and their supporters battling it out very much in the streets of Rome over a six-year period. And you have Theodoric in Ravenna, the Ostrogothic king, who's also making claims to imperial authority, and he has an impact on, on the schism and the fact that he is one of the individuals who helps decide it. So there's a lot of complexity in this in this in this conflict, and, and I think I was drawn to those different narratives um, in particular. I, I like the way you describe it as you've got to have a story, which I, I hadn't thought about before in terms of a PhD research. It's, it's an interesting point. You mentioned your methodology, which I know is social network analysis. 
Can you explain more about what social network analysis is, how you're using it in your research and how extensive a study you will make of the networks? Yeah, um, so I think in, in 2021, we have a sort of innate idea of what social networks are. They're very much in our face. I think a lot of people would think of you know, Facebook or, or, or Twitter as being how we primarily think of, of social networks. Um, though the study of social networks really goes back to the 1930s. So it really draws on the work of um, George Simmel um, and his, his work into understanding ideal forms of relationships. You know, networks are something that are very inherently human. We interact in networks all the time. There are kin networks, friendship networks. So social network analysis very broadly could be seen as the attempt to understand human networks, or at least the, the networks that bind us together through relationships. As it's practiced now, um, a lot of what social network analysis involves is the modeling of complex human relationships and social networks. So to give sort of a concrete example, in my previous research, I've taken um, collections of letters, for instance, um, and used these to map out the relationships between the senders of letters and, and the recipients of letters between them, as well as people who are mentioned incidentally along the way. Um, and that can be really useful in history, particularly for getting a sense of what people do versus what they say. So we often, you know, we see in, in texts all the time, people will say, oh, such and such is my best friend or, or so-and-so is, um, I hate them, they're, they're my enemy. But then you see, oh, this person that they have a bad relationship, they actually send lots of communication to them. They send, you know, seven to 10 letters to them. So are they really so badly connected? Or, you know, the people who, who they say, oh, this is my best friend, my only feature in a letter collection once or twice. And so you have this sort of these differences between what people say and, and how they act. And so that's one way in which I, I sort of use network analysis. Um, it really is a, a broadly a, a, methodol a methodological toolbox where you can use it, you can use sort of a, a range of analytical uh, methodologies to identify who the most important people in the network are, um, who the most influential people in a network are based on the number of relationships they have or who they're connected to. Uh, what I'm really trying to understand in, in my current research is how the coalitions that supported both sides in the Laurentian schism were structured and, how, and also how they, the individual components of those coalitions related together. I tend to define coalitions as networks of support or cooperation. People who follow um, European politics um, in particular may have a better idea of how um, political coalitions are formed and some of the complexities if we say look at what's happening in Germany at the moment, um, the various different arrangements of political parties to form the next mm -hmm. government. Um, when you look at the members of a, of a political coalition, for instance, um, you'll have a, a, a leading element of that coalition and you'll have supporting elements. And those supporting elements don't always have the same goals as each other um, or the same necessarily the same goals as the leading element of the coalition. They have their own motivations. So I'm trying, I'm trying to understand really how the component parts relate to each other, what the relationships are between them, whether all of the members in the coalition um, that supported, say, Pope Symmachus in, in 498 um, agreed with each other, or if they um, had positive connections between each other, or if some elements of that coalition were hostile to each other. And the toolbox of social network analysis has really helped me to uh, understand some of those problems and, and issues. Um, 
a lot of these tools are quantitatively based. They, they allow you to bring a little bit of quantitative analysis to some very subjective problems. Um, and that's what I, I sort of like. It allows you to sort of visualize and um, quantify some of these issues um, with maybe not more certainty, but it allows you, allows you to model them in different ways. Yes, I remember seeing one of the papers you've written, you had lots of the starburst patterns of the social networks. And you can certainly analyze that kind of pattern. While I was reading, I got fairly confused because the names Simacus and Laurentius seem to turn up quite a number of times. Was it the same person? No. So one of the, the big problems of working in, I think, antiquity is that we have a lot of ambiguous identities. So when I conduct a social network analysis project, I'm often very reliant on prosopographical data, that is historic person data. And the work of prosopographers is, to, is often to disambiguate and um, create directories of various historical individuals. I mean, if you look at a a work of prosopography, it's almost like a, a telephone book for the ancient world. Everywhere we find names and identities of individuals, prosopographers try to collect data on those people. But what they construct often is called a, a prosopon because we can't be certain about a lot of the identities because there are a lot of people, for instance, with the same name. There are a lot of also anonymous individuals in, in the past and who we might want to collect data on as well. One of the major problems, I think, and, and this comes from something I gleaned from one of my undergraduate professors, Professor Jeffrey Tatum, um, who was at um, Victoria University in Wellington. The common problem in Roman history is that there are about 10 names in Latin. Now, that's a bit of an uh, exaggeration, but this is a language that names people Quintus, fifth child, you know, Decimus. I mean, Roman naming can be very um, unimaginative at times, but also very repetitive. Um, and in late antiquity, this becomes a lot more difficult because you have, especially in senatorial families, a lot of people trying to state particular identities, famous identities. Um, um, and then we have all sorts of nicknames and things like this. There are two um, individuals called Faustus, and one is called Faustus the Black, and one is Faustus the White. And we have no idea of why they're called that. Um, it, there's no understanding of whether that's an, uh, some sort of um, racial identity or some sort of ethnic identity, or if it's just a way of saying number one and number two. And that's a, a sort of a common way of disambiguating names in, in the Roman world. So yeah, you come across these problems. And so in my research, the big one is we have Symmachus, the Pope, um, who is the successful winner of the Laurentian Schism. And uh, he also, one of his major opponents is the Senator Symmachus, the father-in-law of, of the philosopher Boethius. Uh, we also have Laurentius, the anti-Pope, in addition, one of the major supporters of Symmachus the Pope is Laurentius, the Bishop of Milan. So we have these pairs of conflicting identities and we have to disambiguate between all of those. Um, but yeah, it can make life very uh, problematic at times, um, particularly if you're dealing with letters which often have as their titles to Faustus or to Laurentius, to Symmachus. You have to go in context a lot of the time. And there are issues where we don't quite know who this communication was sent to. Um, there are some, also some very distinct names. I think Enodius is, is a, there are very few Enodii. The coalition building you're talking about in your research is in relation to a papal election and a period of 
post-election violence. In the fifth century, how were popes elected? Who could vote? Well, you have, a, I would say, a very um, ad hoc system for electing popes in the fifth and sixth century. There are certain criteria that have been identified as being important, but there isn't necessarily a formal election process. Usually, um, these elections happen very quickly after the death of the previous pope. And you would have um, three sort of good criteria um, to have there. The time of the election, you know, one person being elected, the fact that they're acclaimed by the populace um, and the place of the election, where, where the election or the consecration happened. So to sort of talk about the, the first one, the, the, the promptness, you, you wanted to have the election very quickly. And usually that meant that um, within one to two weeks, the clergy of Rome would gather in addition all of the bishops that were under the authority of the Bishop of Rome. So the Bishop of Rome is a, is a metropolitan bishop, and he controlled all of the bishops from the center of Italy to Sicily. Rome has a, a large number of 50, 60 bishops that report directly to the Bishop of Rome. And as many of those as possible would also come to consecrate the election. Really, you need at least three bishops for, for an election of any bishop to be seen as as legitimate because to sort of cut down on corruption in a papal elections. Usually you want at least three bishops, but for the Bishop of Rome, you want as many as possible really showing up to legitimize it. But traditionally in late antiquity, I mean, bishops are elected by their congregation widely. Um, and that can mean the population of the city, the clergy underneath them, um, and as well as the aristocracy of the city. Now, in a city like Rome, we're unsure how much of a voice um, the population of the city had, because even in, in late antiquity, that's hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so it's, it's a very large population, and you can't expect them all to fit into one church, for instance, and, and acclaim the, imp, uh, the, the, the Pope. Um, but what is likely is that there would be a staged acclamation of the bishop at some point in a large public space, for instance, the Hippodrome. In late antiquity, in particular, acclamations, that is, you know, the gathering of large groups of people to have them applaud you, is a very effective way of having public support shown. Um, and often for a lot of um, officers, um, even civil officers, they have to be acclaimed by the populace. And, and you, know, you gather up a bunch of people and sometimes you pay people to come and clap for you <laughs> to show that the population assents to, the, to this. Now, of course, there are also, in, in Rome at this time, we still have a Senate. Um, and in late antiquity, it's kind of ambiguous how powerful the senators are. They're incredibly wealthy in this period. It's probably one of the periods where senators are just fantastically wealthy, um, even more so than the early empire. I mean, Peter Brown has a particularly good book on um, wealth in late antiquity uh, through the eye of the needle, which I think is very good. If, while the, the Roman Senate is not the decision-making body that it was in, in the late Republic, um, it is still a body of very influential people that meet to discuss important matters and, and to give their assent to important matters. So they still have a very important role in deciding um, who the next bishop is going to be. And so often, you know, you want the senators present at uh, a consecration as well. I mean, th these are also the major donors to the church in this period, people who donate property 
and money and fund charitable um, foundations throughout the city. So they're important for this because if there is a problem, these are the people who are going to be funding your campaign because you know being elected pope is actually a very expensive business. You also have the clergy at Rome, uh, and you know you have um, two colleges. You have the, the College of Priests and the College of Deacons. And actually, throughout the fifth century, it's mostly deacons who are elected to the papacy. They're the ones who are really in a position to drive an election campaign and have themselves um, acclaimed. Now, what is the problem in the, the, the Laurentian schism is that you have the archdeacon Symmachus elected in, in one church, and then you have the archpresbyter, the, the most senior priest, elected in another church. And so you have two factions, and some historians have sort of said that this represents a conflict between the priests in Rome and the deacons in Rome. So we don't actually really know too much about who specifically supported which side. Um, this, this claim that the, the plebs supported uh, uh, Symmachus and, and the Senate uh, Laurentius comes from the Liber Pontificalis. That has a very pro-Symmachus propaganda line within it. So in that in that text, I think we have really an, an attempt to sort of show, okay, you have all these senators and they like this other candidate, but actually the people of Rome really wanted, the man of the people was, was Symmachus. And it really was this cabal of wealthy individuals behind the throne trying to elect um, elect a, a sort of a, a, an unfavored candidate. <laughs> this sounds very Trumpian, I think. Uh, some of the th things that were labeled at Hillary, sort of thrown at Hillary Clinton, you have this shadowy network behind them of, of wealthy individual donors, right? Um, so this is sort of a, a maybe a propaganda line that, that we come across. Yeah, so it's, it's a, very complex, a very complex business. There's a lot of people involved. Um, there's a lot of money involved. You have to give gifts to people when you go have the um, election confirmed, for instance. And in a contested election like this, um, where you have to go to Ravenna to have the um, matter decided, you need to take a bunch of gifts to give to all the courtiers and all of um, people at court because it's an official embassy. Um, and this leads the, the Laurentian side to say that, well, actually, Symmachus won the, at the end of the day because he had the most money. So at that point, how much power did the Pope have? This schism actually is seen by medieval historians often as the, you know, one of the first stepping stones of papal primacy. In, in the West, where, where the bishops of Rome really start their path towards becoming uh, a dominant um, figure in the church in the West. In this period, there is a, you know, sort of a contest really between civil powers and religious powers over who has the most power in the city. But the, the Bishop of Rome pays a lot of people in, in Rome at this period. You know, there are uh, porters for every church who are in charge of um, occupying the doors. Um, you have grave diggers, there are a huge um, number of grave diggers employed by the church, as well as um, individuals such as lower clergy. Um, so the, the, the Bishop of Rome pays a lot of people in Rome. And so within Rome, yes, very, a very important individual. And also, you know, someone who has a lot of authority over charity and the dis distribution of charity in Rome. Um, you know, realistically, though, how powerful is, is the, um, the Pope? They're not as powerful as they would be in later periods. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of property and a lot of money, but they don't have their own state. They're not, in, not, not as, as they are now. You have sort of a, a vying for influence between the Pope and the King in Ravenna, uh, and also with the Pope and um, Constantinople and the Emperor in Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And the Popes are also sort of 
uh, sort of fighting for influence with the other four patriarchs. So in this period, we still have five um, patriarchs, one Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria. So you have a lot of conflict. Dan, the period you're researching, fifth century, the power of the Roman Empire was in severe decline and it was divided between Constantinople and Ravenna. The only reason Rome seemed to remain influential and important was because it was the seat of the Pope. I've been wondering how important was the political and the physical geography of the period in the networking, in the coalition building? Yeah. Um... You know, what's really interesting about this period is if you look at a, a writer such as Enodius of Pavia, they will claim that they lived in a golden age of peace. Um, but they, 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 their sort of geographical horizons have shifted. Um, I've been reading Enodius's Life of uh, the Bishop Epiphanes, which is a, a hagiography um, that he wrote about one of his former bishops. And in it, that bishop is sent on an um, embassy to Gaul by the emperor Julius Nepos. And he's sort of shown as defending uh, the Italian empire. And we get this sort of rewriting of, of history because even though the Gallic provinces had a very recent, up until very recently, been part of the Western half of the empire, uh, Anodius kind of very quickly rewrites it so that, okay, this is a, it, Italy is the seat of, of the empire. And it's, it's, you know, as long as we've got Italy, everything's you know, A-OK. This is sort of a period where you do have some decline of political boundaries. It's, it's inarguable. The, the Visigoths um, are in power in, in the former Gallic provinces and in Spain. Uh, the Vandals um, uh, take over Africa during this period. And Theodoric and the Ostrogoths are in charge of Italy. Theodoric, you know, there's been a very good uh, book recently by Jonathan Arnold on um, Theodoric as a Roman emperor and how he portrays himself as a Roman emperor and um, how he very, you know, meets a lot of the criteria of being a, a Roman emperor. So there are some definite, definite changes uh, in this period um, that affect the political geography. But in the East, I mean, you, know, you might see that there is very little change, um, especially in this period. The Western half of the empire, the Western Mediterranean, yes, sort of comes under new management. Um, but in the East, which is the wealthier part of the empire, it's always been the, the economic heartland of the empire, is in a period of, of strengthening. I mean, this is part of the sixth century, it's just before Justinian takes over as, as emperor in Constantinople. In terms of sort of the political geography, Rome is still very important symbolically. It is still the heartland of, of a, a Roman empire. Rome is still seen as a, as a very symbolic center. One of the problems that the Laurentian schism creates is that by having, you know, causing violence in the city of Rome, Theodoric, who's trying to legitimate his, his rulership in Italy, is unable to enter the city. And he, wanted, he wants to enter the city in 500 to celebrate his, his anniversary of taking over Italy. And he does manage to do this. So in 500, he enters the city um, and is welcomed into the city by um, the, the, the Pope Symmachus, who he decides in favor of in the dispute. As a symbol of authority, Rome is still a very important location. And while it might not be a center of real power, it doesn't lose its sort of importance as, as, a, as, as a symbol.
Um, yes, you do have the rise of other other capitals, and Constantinople is the the main one. You know, Constantinople has been the center of the empire since the third century by this point, um, or the fourth century. Um, for being, you know, so that that's you know two hundred years at least that it's been in you know that position. Um, so some of those changes have already really existed um, for a, for a long time by the period of the fifth century. Yes, it, 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 that sort of adds to the conflict because the, the bishops of Rome compete with not only the Bishop of Constantinople, but the emperor in Constantinople for authority over the church. This is a period where the emperor is still seen as a religious figure in the church. And there is you know, still debate over whether or not it's the emperor who's in charge or, or, or the priests under, under, um, under the, the Bishop of Rome. Um, you know, there are increasing distances between these regions. Um, you, you, we are in a period where the emperor might be nominally in charge of Italy, but he's not practically in charge of Italy um, mm -hmm. in this period, Theodoric is. And that means that there is room for this competition to sort of flourish. There's room for opposing voices to sort of emerge here um, because you don't have a, a single emperor dominating um, the political landscape. And so, yeah, when we sort of... Talk about the the geographic landscape. I mean, it, how it affects the schism really is is that we sort of there is an argument that uh, Symmachus is the more independently minded candidate who's more about papal primacy and papal power, whereas Laurentius is the one who wants to be more conciliatory to Constantinople and forge links with with Constantinople. And traditionally, this has been mm -hmm. seen why the the Senate support him because they have interests in Constantinople they've got interest in both camps they still have an interest in, in Theodoric as well but they see him as part of the system yeah it's, it's, it's a very complex and sort of uh, challenging period from that regard because there's a lot of different people who can claim authority in different regions um, I think that's one of the really interesting parts of this period is that it's not a, a sort of a one very important person at the top there's a lot of competing claims to authority and influence I've just been thinking that you've got the emperor in Constantinople and he effectively delegates authority to the emperor in Italy, whether it's Ravenna or Rome. You think to delegate authority, it's strengthening, but it seems actually to be weakening the authority. It's hard to sometimes see where the boundaries are. Sometimes we have these relationships between emperors where one is the senior one and one is the junior one, um, but that's not always the case. And often each emperor is, is sort of at pains to show that they're independent. In the late 5th century, we have a number of emperors who are appointed by um, Constantinople, and Themius is a, is a good example. Um, but they're often seen as being very foreign. Um, Anodius of Pavia talks about the, the conflict between the Generalissimo Ricima and Anthemius, middle of the, of, of the fifth century. And, and, and he calls Anthemius, who's, who is the Roman emperor, this Greekling. He's, this, he, he's a foreigner. He's, a, he, he's an irate Galatian. Um, he's, he, he is the one who's portrayed as being more sort of barbaric than the, the general who has you know, Gothic heritage. Um, he's the one who's in Italy, who's defending Northern Italy, um, who controls the army. You know, local loyalties can be very split um, in this period as well. Um, and it's not always clear that just because someone is the Roman emperor, um, whether or not he has authority over 
um, or parts or, or, or that local elites really see that person as, as the best option. Yes, delegation. Sometimes you do have that relationship and sometimes you have individuals like um, Theodoric who sort of claim it on their own merit. I mean, Theodoric is sent to Italy by the Emperor Zeno probably to get him out of the way and his army out of the Balkans because that's a major recruiting ground for the Eastern Empire. Hmm. Yes, of course, Theodoric being a general, he would naturally have power of the army right behind him. Hmm. Dan, in some ways we have a similar background. We both had good professional careers for some years before turning to CEU to study for a personal challenge. How did you find the experience of the CEU Medieval Studies Department? Yeah, one of the benefits of CEU being a small university um, is that you're exposed to a lot of different things if you want to. It's one of, the, one of those universities where you can take yourself as far as you want to go. If, in growing as a, a person who, in, in my sort of the methodolo methodological aspects, for instance, um, I learned a lot of my um, social network analysis skills as um, a part of the, what was then a research center for um, network analysis and network science at CEU. I'd also say that um, the medieval studies program at CEU has a strong interdisciplinary focus. And, you know, my thesis doesn't just deal with text or archeological material or historical analysis, geographic mapping. It deals with a wide range of material types and um, evidence types and methodological approaches. And that's very much encouraged, I think, at CEU. You know, I would say that also that CEU's political mission has sort of influenced how I look at coalitions and, and coalition building as well. I mean, CEU is a university that has a, was founded on a, a sort of a political idea of, of liberalism. And that has fed into my, into, into, into my thesis in terms of how I view conflicts and the shifts in political dynamics in the culture that I'm looking at. Um, you know, you tend to research what you see around you a little bit. Yeah, CEU has thrown up a lot of opportunities for me to kind of take my research in different directions, uh, which I've really appreciated. So Dan, where do you hope this research and your doctorate from CEU, where do you hope it would take you? I think uh, I've really approached doing a PhD as a, a project in myself to a large extent. Um, the reason I began this project is I wanted to do something difficult and I wanted to sort of grow through that experience. Um, I'd previously been working for a government department in, in New Zealand and um, had sort of reached where I was going to the top of where I was going to go in my particular role and so I sort of thought well I want to do something difficult this is something I wanted to do for a long time I'm going to I'm going to see if I can do it I'm going to see if I can climb this particular mountain um, you know my interest really has grown throughout the course of this thesis though in digital methodologies in coding um, I've always sort of been fascinated by coding and, 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 and computers. I, I, as a child, I was very interested in a, a book called um, Dick Smith's Fun Way into Electronics, a book of diagrams of how to make simple electronic circuits, a book I read cover to cover. Um, and so I've used this thesis to kind of do a few of those projects in, in, in the digital space. So my thesis sort of works on quantitative analysis, um, statistical modeling, also geographic modeling. I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work to map 
the, the conflict throughout Italy and map the spaces in which the conflict occurred in. You know, I'd be very interested in working um, in the private sector again, um, whether or not that's in software development or project management, um, because I think one of the things that doing a PhD really does teach you is how to take a project from nothing to the to an end point. But I think fundamentally, really, the benefit of, of doing a PhD for me has been how it's changed how I think about hard problems and how I approach difficult problems. Um, like, how do you study a population when you don't have all of the data about that population? We don't know all of the individuals who participated in the schism. We probably have a 15 to 20% of an idea of, of who supported who in the schism. And I'm trying to reconstruct a, a, a small sample of that to give a, an idea of, of what might have happened to, to generate an argument. And, we, and when you deal with quantitative methodologies in the humanities, you're not creating a model that is a fact about the past. It's an argument about the past and it's another strand of that argument about the past. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's been very a very useful um, experience in learning about the complexities of information and the complexities about um, people's arguments and things like propaganda and, and, and different viewpoints. I mean, I think in an age where um, communication is such a fraught and complex affair, that um, this has been a really great experience in terms of, you know, how do you deal with some of these complex issues and problems? So, And thank you so much for talking to us. It's been really, really interesting to hear about your research and to get to know you better as well. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks a lot.